0: Lord, I pray that my speech and my message will not be in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that our faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. Thanks a lot for flexing with me, guys. We will get through everything by the time the service is over. But I just felt like it was time that we needed to just stop and listen to the word for a while. About five years ago, Sally was on the board of a Christian ministry that was working to articulate its core values. It's kind of its culture for ministry. And one of the words that kept surfacing was authentic. We want to be authentic Christians and to provide an authentic Christian community. Well, Sally uh, is always alert to trends versus substance. Substance. And so that didn't sit well with her wife, because it was a trendy word back then. Everybody was talking about being authentic. And she just simply said, what do you really mean by that? What do you mean by authentic? And nobody could find anything in scriptures that really kind of gave flesh to the word, but they kept saying, we want to be authentic. Well, about that time when she was wrestling with authenticity, we found ourselves in the home of a then 95-year-old saint named Jim Houston. Uh, He is now 100, uh, he, we were in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. He's a teacher and a longtime teacher and author at uh, Regent College, and he had spent decades not only teaching but decades mentoring and pastoring students. And so he had a massive impact and had a big impact on my life as well. And we knew him personally as a man who was the epitome of Christian wisdom and character. He just had—he just exuded uh, the, the the goodness and the beauty of God. So Sally expressed her discomfort to Dr. Houston. What do you think we mean when we're trying to get around the word authentic? And he paused. And as he always started, my dear Sally, my dear Steve, my dear Chris, whatever it was, you know what I mean? You know, my dear. And he was British, so he could say that in a very different way. But anyway, sounded good. My dear Sally, I think what people are reaching for is a word that embodies Christian character and healthy community. And the best word for that is the word humility. And I love the conversation because God had brought that to my attention a few years before I'd been circling it. And in fact, Chris, your ordination was the first time that I actually preached about humility because it was something that was really on my mind at that time. And I've been thinking about it ever since. The gospel passage for today places humility front and center of the kingdom of God. It's the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee is contemptuously proud of the publican. The tax collector on his part stands open-handed before God, waiting to receive God's word. Whatever it is, whether God speaks a word of judgment or correction or mercy, whatever the gospel message is, the tax collector is ready to receive it. And Jesus goes on in the gospel passage immediately to hold out a little child as a model of the life of the kingdom a little child, open-hearted and trusting and acknowledging smallness and dependence. We also know from what Jesus says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which people see as the, sort of the charter of the kingdom of God, uh, we see the place of the bas- basic posture of humility. For Jesus begins and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Okay, good. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So he says right at the beginning of the, this is the declaration of the kingdom of God. And the very first thing he says is, blessed are those who come empty-handed. And we come empty-handed every week to embody that when we come to the table, right? A reminder of the fact that we need a life that we do not have within ourselves. We need to receive what only God can give us. Well, I want to talk with all of you today, and I, I confirm you can pull this into your, the conversation we had earlier, but also, Scott, with you particularly about humility. Humility is our very orientation to God and to others and to ourselves. It is the handmaiden of love. It's the essential heart of a true servant, leader, and shepherd. And humility is not only that, it goes beyond that. It's ground zero, and that's my words, of Christian character. It's the basic posture of what it means to be a Christian. So humility is something all of us, I mean, Scott, for you, for the confirmands, as you guys are stepping up to the plate, but for all of us who claim the name of Christ, this is something we need to think about. Now, the concept of humility, and we're going to get back to the Zephaniah, which shows up two or three times in that passage. You might not have noticed it in all those, uh, the, the prophecy there. But we see it in the gospel passage, but it's in the background of the reading in 1 Corinthians. And so if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The direct message of 1 Corinthians 1 is that the cross of Christ is the essence of the gospel. And basically, if you look at 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is saying to believe the gospel and to think according to the gospel is to ponder and absorb the overwhelming and wonderful reality of the cross of Christ. And he says to live a gospel-shaped life is to live a cruciform life. And to proclaim the gospel means to proclaim the wonder and the mystery of the cross as the very door of life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17... Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the direct message of 1 Corinthians is putting the cross right in the center of our faith, the cross right in the center of the gospel proclamation, the cross right in the center of the Christian life. But what is the cross? What does it mean? What's the content? It's not a slogan, and it's far more than something you wear around your neck. It's not some vague concept. The cross of Christ that Paul is talking about is a statement about a certain historical person named Jesus who died at a point in time in a certain place on a cruel and inhuman instrument of Roman execution. It happened in history. Something really happened that we're talking about. The cross of Christ is an event. Something happened. But as an interesting point of history, we're not there yet because history teaches us that crucifixions was, were, were shockingly common. Hundreds of thousands, millions of crucifixions happened in the Roman Empire during that time of period. Sally and I just got through listening to a very depressing three-and-a-half-hour podcast called The Fall of Carthage. I don't recommend it, okay? You'll be sad when you get through. But at one point in time, there was a rebellion in Carthage, same time period, and the rebellion was put down. 40,000 people were cross, cru- crucified on the streets around Carthage. At one time, 40,000 people. That was just one event. So imagine hundreds of years of that kind of practice. But this particular crucifixion stands out. (laughs) Why? Because it's coupled with what Paul is going to write at the end of the same letter with equal conviction. And we sang this morning, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because we know at the end of this letter in 1 Corinthians 15, he will say that there's something else that equally happened in history as this crucifixion. What equally happened in history was this resurrection. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it repopulates the cross and makes it mean something it would never have meant in the millions of crucifixions that were happening at that time. The resurrection validates the claims of Jesus. Therefore, we know that this person on this cross is God incarnate, God in the flesh. Amen? Amen. And therefore, that demands that we rethink the death of Christ in a particular way. Because this is God incarnate suffering and dying. Not a common death or particular death, but a horrible and painful and shameful death. A death of a defeated criminal or an enemy that has been defeated, a common criminal. It's the death that Romans saw saw as justifying or justly fitting a throwaway person. Forget this guy. Throw him in the garbage heap of history. His own people, the Jews, would see it as a particular statement of God's rejection, that this person was certainly guilty before God. So why is that particular death of God in the flesh necessary? this death that was shameful, that declared his guilt. Well, Paul's conviction is, I think, the essence of the gospel, because what happened with Paul, Paul was a Jew, he had seen the cross of Christ, he had made conclusions about Jesus on the cross, that this was a throwaway person, and then suddenly he met that crucified cross Christ on the road to Damascus, and he had fell on his face before the living God of the universe. And suddenly in that moment, can you imagine what happened, the whiplash in his brain? How did he absorb this? Well, God gave him the gift of three days of blindness. We well, had nothing to do but sit and think. And I believe he was thinking about nothing more than what did the cross possibly mean. Because he knew the scriptures from the Old Testament that the person on the cross is cursed by God. But he also knew that that person now is God in the flesh. And he understood that suddenly that person who is on that cross is the living Lord of the universe. And that enormous exchange in his own mind produced the exchange that is the gospel. He describes it in 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. He speaks in chapter 5, the love of Christ controls us that we have concluded this, that one has died for all, for us, in our place. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Confirmance, you're saying you want to follow Jesus and live for Jesus. It's an exchange. He died for you so that you might live for him so that you might live unto him. That's what you were saying today. Paul goes on to describe, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh, although we regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We used to see Jesus just in the flesh, but suddenly that encounter on the road to Damascus changed everything. Now we know if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, creature, creation. We know that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation what was happening there is this great exchange which the result was reconciliation god and humanity were reconciled and so then he goes on to say therefore we are ambassadors for christ god making us his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of christ be reconciled to god for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now, that's it. That's how he was the cursed. He became sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become sinless and righteous before God. The great exchange. And Paul realized that the death of Jesus became the climactic wonder of the most radical mystery of all of history. This was it. Therefore, Paul's evangelism was centered in the preaching of the cross and holding the cross out as the heart of the gospel. Now, let me summarize some implications for us. It puts Jesus in the center of the conversation about ultimate truth and reality. You cannot seriously understand the historical reality of the cross and the resurrection, and put those together, and continue to discard him, ignore him, or mock him, and have any intellectual or moral integrity. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You can ignore it, not, but if you can take one moment to consider the reality, the historical realities that we're talking about here, you have to rethink your entire intellectual system, and center it now in Jesus, or your ent- entire moral system, and center it in Jesus, Because there is none other. There is no other God. There is no other king. There is no other Messiah. There is no other priest. There is no other lamb. There is no other sacrifice. The cross of Christ answers the question of the essential crisis of human life. Because the essential crisis is separation from God through sin. And the essential answer is reconciliation through the cross. And everything else pales in comparison to the fact that when you are reconciled to God, now you can begin to think about your life differently. Out from there flows all of the questions that come. It it proclaims the radical answer to the burdens and challenges because now I'm suddenly, whatever burden challenge I have, I'm with God in it. I am with him in it. He is with me. He has come to the very depths of my being. He has borne the criminal's death the shameful death, the stripped death. If he's come there, he has come with me at any place in my own struggles and challenges. So it's not a a matter of overcoming your challenges by some superhuman effort. It's a matter of enduring them with Christ so that your deliverance comes by his blessing and his presence. The cross confronts the death, the threat of death and its power. Because we see that Christ faced it head on, and and frankly, he won. I have had the conversation yesterday with a a man who was going through some very, very deep waters. That's what the the cross of Christ has told us, is that there is no more worst thing. Because the worst thing has happened, and it got defeated. It didn't work. (laughs) Satan threw everything he had, and it didn't work. It's why Jews, the great representative race of religious people, stumble at the cross because it debunks all the myths around if I just try harder or jump higher or find the right path for human perfection or follow the right teacher who will make me realize my full innate spirituality and all that stuff goes, <laughs> forget that stuff. It just doesn't hold, it doesn't hold water. It's why Greeks, the great representatives of human intellectual achievement and power find the cross utter foolishness because it confronts the myth that there is no God, or that we have no need of him, it puts to lie anything that says we can live with purpose without reference to God. It's why all of us on a personal level must lay down our pride or self-satisfaction. That's why humility is in the background this whole conversation. Because we know because of the cross, and it states right there in 1 Corinthians, we're not wise enough, we're not smart enough, by any standards, we're not powerful enough, no, none of us is noble enough, blue blood enough. King Charles last weekend is nothing without the cross. He's just a man. No awards or achievements or no toys we can buy. And in fact, to be honest with you, the way we look at it as the cross is we realize we're rather foolish creatures. <laughs> Have a sense of humor. Come on, laugh at yourself. You're decidedly weak. You're a child. I'm a child. We're always on the end of someone's scorn. Often on the end of someone's hatred. We cannot redeem ourselves from sin and death. So let's turn back to the topic. Humility as the posture of a genuine Christian life. How does the cross of Christ lay the foundation for humility? The cross of Christ in the end proclaims and shouts our unworthiness. And in the same voice shouts our worth it shouts the value that we have to god and our complete inability to save ourselves take that very personally the cross of christ tells you two things about yourself you cannot do it on your own and you are profoundly loved and it has been done for you same message And then finally, the cross of Christ in the end proclaims and shouts our dependence upon God. If Jesus is the kind of God who takes on the cross for us, then we can look beyond any current state of failure or doubt or grief or confusion or depression and know that the God of the universe meets us in his love. He is with us. He will take our burdens on himself and return to us increasing righteousness. And so it All this we can stand gladly in the place of humility. Now, having said that, Zephaniah helps us as I bring to conclusion what does it mean to live a life of humility? And if you read Zephaniah carefully, the word humility shows up about four times in very powerful contexts. And this is what we've told about humility Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden in the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek righteousness, seek his commands. Be willing to stand before the judgment of God, literally. Be willing for God to correct you. Be humble enough to receive his correction and to know that that is a blessing because he's kept you from destroying yourself. Be willing to receive his correction. In chapter 3, I will leave in your midst to people humble and lowly and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So not only seek to hear his voice to you, seek his protection and his care. Never run away when you're weak and, and exposed. Run to him. Run to him. At the moment you fear that you should run away, run toward him. Every time. I will make you renowned and praised among the people of the earth and I will restore your fortunes before your very eyes because this, I am rejoicing over you. So be humble enough to be loved. Be humble enough to be corrected. Be humble enough to seek him in everything. Be humble enough to be loved and to know that you are loved.